Yeah. So anybody who's starting a company, or at least from my perspective, it requires three ingredients. You have to be willing to work at your absolute limit for as long as possible. And people say, oh, I work 10 hours, I work 50 hours, whatever it is. I mean, whatever your limit is, you need to give it that and then beyond at a sustained pace, period. There's been no escaping hard work in my three companies. We got 50 or 60,000 orders a day, but at the time I said, we had 20,000 orders in one day. And they said, how is that even possible? We don't get 20,000 orders in a year. And the key was two things. One, first mover's advantage, and two, building a... I learned not to work with your spouse, right? Because at the end of the day, when you're working hard, start growing a business for us, you know, it's frustrating. You want to come home and kind of be able to unwind. It's very difficult to kind of unwind and vent on your partner. I entered with a strategy, and that strategy was not to get large VC money. Because two things, I didn't think I needed it. And two, I didn't want to give up control of the organization. Good morning. My name is Jalem Getz. I'm 47 years old. I live in Grand Cayman, which is the largest of three islands in the Cayman Islands. And I work remotely at my company, which is based in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. That company is Wantable. We are an online personal styling service for women and men. We focus on women's ready-to-wear and men's and women's fitness apparel. And as a personal styling service, we're really in the business of curating assortments of apparel for our customers. They get the opportunity to try it in the comfort of their own home before they purchase. And everything is sent to them is a surprise. We do use technology mixed with human stylists to curate products, again, so that uh, customers kind of have that surprise and delight when it arrives at their doorstep. There's other players in the space that you might be familiar with, the Trunk Club, which was kind of the first company in the space that came along. And then you had Stitch Fix, which is a large public company. And we consider ourselves kind of like the third iteration there. So we jokingly would call Trunk Club the MySpace of the the world, Stitch Fix, Facebook, and then ourselves kind of the scrappy Instagram of the world. So a little bit smaller, a little bit more specialized, but serving a great customer base. Yeah. I guess you want to want to be Snapchat, right? Isn't that going downhill? Yeah, I suppose the next company along is going to be uh, Snapchat. But who knows? They really need to figure out their advertising model. And once they do, to monetize that customer base, they should be doing a lot better. It seems like a lot of these retailers, these online retailers that I can get clothing from, like yourself, were you able to take off using some type of social media? Because it sounds like that's been a thing that kind of helped spur these type of companies. Yeah, certainly in the early stages. So we use social media a lot, but social media in terms of a free platform has really been on the decline in the last several years. I mean, talk to any advertiser today and the notion of getting free impressions, free eyeballs, that's starting to kind of dissipate because Facebook, which also, of course, owns Instagram is really using kind of their algorithms to promote more paid content. So if we post something on Wantable's Facebook page, which probably has 400,000 followers, the amount of impressions and interactions we get versus a boosted post, which we might do on occasion, or an ad uh, is significantly less. I mean, it's really a monetization engine for those companies now. So the notion of kind of free eyeballs, that ended a few years ago. But when you get started, was it actually pretty helpful? Because I talked to the founder of Hubble Contacts, and if anyone's curious, that's episode 159. And he is saying, basically, that's how he was able to spur his company. And there's a lot of similar companies, like they were just basically doing contacts, but they were able to kind of slap a brand on it, make it kind of cool. And by using social media advertising at the time, which was like you're emphasizing very cheap rates, they were able to grow their base. I mean, this customer base sounds like pretty significantly. So I didn't know if that was one of those things that helped you jumpstart your growth or if there were other tactics that actually helped you. 
No, no. I mean, I would love to say, hey, we kind of caught that that wave. A friend of mine, and I've been in e-commerce for many, many years. So a friend of mine for a while was running a company called Shoe Dazzle. And this is about eight or nine years ago. And they were really one of the last ones to capitalize on kind of that. Now they had partnered with celebrity stylists back then, which really kind of allowed that to catch fire. But for us, no, we're much more of a direct marketer. I hate to say it. If you're in the business of selling products, there really is nothing more important than the products that you sell. So I don't want to downplay the importance of great products, great team, and a great service model, which we're in the business of service. But that said, that's kind of the barrier to entry, right? You have to have a great product and provide great service to be successful today. But beyond that, we're really kind of focused as a direct marketer in the sense that we measure customer acquisition costs, return on ad spend and constantly are moving dollars around between the various platforms. Although Facebook is the largest today for most direct marketers like ourselves. But yeah, it's really just roll up the sleeves, make sure that you're taking care of your customer and you're in a position to afford the ever increasing cost to acquire a customer out there. And so how big is Wannable as far as revenues or customer base? If you can give us some numbers around that. I'll give you some directional numbers because I know that's something that your listeners really like to know. Of course, we're a private company and I'm sure with your reach, all of our competitors are listening to this too. So I want to give away just enough to satisfy your listeners, but not so much that our competitors can kind of triangulate where we are in the space. So we have 150 employees. We have two locations in Wisconsin, a 75,000 square foot warehouse and a 40,000 square foot main office where we house our photo studio and things like that. Revenue is in that $50 million mark, you know, and I'll use that as kind of a loose term. I typically reference for, uh, 50 million. So let's call it somewhere between 40 and 60 million is our revenue. And we're growing at slightly above kind of the average, right? So in that 20 to 30% annual growth, we are not a overly funded company. So we don't have a lot of VC money in the company. So for those of your listeners that do follow maybe the Hubbles of the world, and these other very successful companies, some of them are saying, okay, we're going to take the position of going out and getting a large check from a venture capitalist, maybe. 10 million, 100 million, or maybe even more. Wantable Life Today, it's an eight-year-old company. We've raised $5 million Life Today. So in the world of our competitors, we've raised very, very little. But at the end of the day, we're in the business of creating a profitable, successful business, and it will grow naturally and organically at its own pace. And we don't have the pressure from VCs to say, okay, we have to have an exit here. You have to have this certain amount of scale. And Wantable is a retailer at the end of the day. And retailers are different than maybe a marketplace or a social network where you really need to have a land grab. Our primary customer is a mid-30s professional woman. And if you think about it, she does not shop at just one store. She's going to shop at not only our competitors, but probably Target or Amazon, uh, Walmart, things like that. So she really does spread her dollars around the retail spectrum. And so we don't have to say, okay, if we're not getting her, then she's going and never coming back. That's just not the way it is in retail. And now we do want to constantly increase our ship, what we call share of wallet, the amount that she's spending with us. But at the end of the day, we're just one piece of her retail budget. And notice you mentioned, I guess, didn't you say like 175,000 square foot warehouse? 75,000. Oh, 75,000. Okay. Yeah. Which is still pretty big. That's what I was going to ask you even about that. Cause you're saying that you're not just a marketplace that you're a retailer and that you have to have your inventory in this warehouse. Is that correct? Absolutely. And I guess just tell us about like even purchasing something, how you go about doing that when you're growing your business. 
Yeah. So first off, a retailer, even a medium-sized online retailer like ourselves, I mean, you're also in the logistics business. I mean, to be perfectly frank, it's been my experience that a key differentiator, and this is my third company, and we can talk about the other ones in a bit, but focusing solely on Wantable, you know, logistics is a very important component, right? Capturing the order is just one piece. You have to make sure you have the right product available. You're efficient getting it out the door. And also because we're a try before you buy business. What try before you buy means is we're sending product to a customer before she has paid for it. That means that product is still our inventory. She then has a prepaid returned envelope where she can put none or all of the products back in it and send it back to us. So not only are we paying for shipping to the customer, we're paying shipping back from the customer. And we're hopeful that we send her an assortment of product that she likes and wants to buy. If she doesn't buy anything, well, that expense is entirely on us and we're not making money. So the onus is really on us to deliver an incredible experience. And the best way to do that is to control as much of the supply chain as you can, which includes the purchasing process. So we have about 10 buyers and merchants that specialize in seeking these products for our customers. We have an army of stylists that are well-trained and skilled at styling, and they work directly with the customer. And then, of course, we have an entire logistics team in the warehouse that then receives product from our vendors, receives product back from our customers, processes that, puts it in a location in a pickback environment, and then it's picked and sent back out to customers. So logistics and supply chain are very important in any retail business, but especially one like ours where there's so much labor associated with touching garments. So we can't use what's called a 3PL, a third-party logistics provider, for instance, because they just as efficient and as tuned to our business model as we would need. Well, sounds pretty easy, huh? <laughs> yeah. No, but that's the barrier to entry, right? So sometimes I look at, and I'll talk briefly about my previous company, yeah, if you don't mind, yeah, we'll jump back to that. But I was just joking around, obviously, because it's like the kicker was too, is you sending those clothes out and then if they don't like it, you sending it back. And then it's easy enough to me when I'm thinking of just a product and making a product and selling it right to a retailer or something like that. But you've got so many moving parts, it sounds like a big old headache. And I guess maybe with your background, you're able to figure this out. But the pros and cons of what you're doing now, can you just tell us about that, I guess, and what you consider easy and what might be your superpower as far as how you're able to grow this business and make it successful? First off, if I were to have a superpower, it's identifying people that are very good at what they do and convincing them to come work for my company. Because at the end of the day, you have to be better than the competition, or at least we feel we have to be better than the competition to be successful. So that requires specialized skills from technology team, the merchandising team, to stylists on down the line. But just focusing in on myself for a minute, I was a process engineer in a previous life. I started my first company nearly 25 years ago. But before that, uh, out of college, I was a process engineer. And essentially what a process engineer does is figure out an efficient way to do a, initiate a process, right? Logistics was something that I had experience with. And then I kind of honed that skill in my first two companies, which were actually in the Halloween space. So if you rewind back to 95, 1996, when I launched Halloween Express, which was a temporary Halloween company, they would now call that a pop-up Halloween company. And this was a new kind of market and it was seasonal retail. So when I would talk to folks then, they would say, what do you do the rest of the year? Well, the truth is we would work all year for kind of that one day, that one holiday, right? Buying the inventory, sourcing it, identifying the locations and malls to rent and so on. My second company, Buy Seasons, which owned BuyCostumes.com, Costume Express, Birthday Express, Evite, all these other party celebration and Halloween businesses. It was very much a logistics play there, right? So we would ramp from the off-season and call it 3,000 orders a day 
to the peak season of between 50 and 60,000 orders every day. So our workforce would go from about 500 people to over 2,000 people. And so these were very difficult things to do. But the truth is, is anytime something is difficult, it creates a barrier to entry, which means it makes it more difficult for the competition. I mean, the truth is today, anybody can open up a Shopify store and put out a beautiful website and start selling. But that's just the beginning. At the end of the day, you have to be able to efficiently deliver product, take care of customers and meet their needs, because if you don't, they're going somewhere else. When it's time to hire, I know that finding the right person for your company can be challenging. This is especially true in a small business where every employee truly impacts the organization. So when you're ready to find your next hire, LinkedIn can help. LinkedIn Jobs matches your role with qualified candidates so you can find the right person quickly. One of the features that I find most valuable on LinkedIn Jobs is being able to target someone in your geographic area. LinkedIn is an active community of professionals with 675 million members worldwide. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with the hard and soft skills you're looking for, so you can hire the right person faster. Things like collaboration, creativity, adaptability. LinkedIn looks beyond just hard skills and puts your job posts in front of qualified candidates every day so it's seen by people looking for jobs like yours that's why companies rate linkedin jobs the number one hiring platform for delivering quality hires find the right person meant for your business today with linkedin jobs you can pay what you want and the first 50 dollars is on them just visit linkedin.com millionaire again that's linkedin.com millionaire to get 50 dollars off your first job post terms and conditions apply In today's world, every company needs more than a simple website. Customers expect personalized, feature-rich experiences. But developing a website that can compete requires time, energy, and of course, the ability to write code. Well, at least it used to, before Bubble. Bubble introduces a new way to build a web application. It's a no-code, point-and-click programming tool. Build on Bubble and join over 300,000 entrepreneurs like yourself who are now free to focus on growing their business and not struggling to maintain a website. Bubble is the visual programming and cloud platform that empowers founders to build visually and without code. Get started today by signing up for a free account. And whenever you're ready to launch, Bubble is giving all of our listeners a 40% discount for your first three months by using this secret link, bubble.io forward slash millionaire. That's right, 40% off your first three months by going to bubble.io forward slash millionaire. And if you're interested in learning more about the Bubble platform, well, go check out my interview with the founder on episode 170. So those were your two companies leading up to this company, the Wannable now? Okay. You want to jump back to that first Halloween company? Maybe we can dive more in detail because I was doing the math. It sounded like you're about 22 years old when you started the Halloween company. Yep. Yep. Exactly right. Very good at math. My business partner, John Madoc, and I, he was actually still in college. We met just to kind of share the story. I was a process engineer for a company here in Wisconsin or over in Wisconsin. And we met because I picked up a seasonal job working at Radio Shack. You know, this is how far back that is when Radio Shack not only existed, but was relevant because I want to pay for my ski trips. And I came up with this idea, coincidentally, a necktie of the month club, right? Again, this is now more than two decades ago. And John happened to have someone in the industry, and we decided to launch what was called a pop-up store in the mall. So way back then, there were what they were called carts and kiosks that you could sell on malls in the mall. This was just kind of an emerging kind of market back then. 
and it was successful. And then the next year, I think in 1996, we launched the Halloween business and then that really took off and that's what we focused on. So this was two guys that happened to come together at the right time when Halloween in the early 90s, mid 90s was transitioning from, was traditionally a kind of a kid's holiday into what we called the beer and cigarettes crowd. I'd never heard of that. Yeah. So the beer and cigarettes crowd are the young adults in college that were going out and partying. Honestly, at the time, looked sexy and men wanted to be funny. And so we capitalized on that market expansion and launched temporary Halloween stores. Is that how you met your wife was through one of these stores? Nope. Actually, I met my first wife, coincidentally, back in my hometown in California. I'm from California originally. But no, completely separate. And I did learn she worked for me, kind of taking a little side story here. I learned not to work with your spouse, right? Because at the end of the day, when you're working hard, start growing a business for us. You know, it's frustrating. You want to come home and kind of be able to unwind. It's very difficult to kind of unwind and vent on your partner when he or she was working in the trenches alongside you all day. So that's something that I learned from my first two companies was trying to kind of separate, at least for me anyways, the kind of the work from the home life. And it's proven to be very successful now. Okay. So yeah, sorry, jumping back into this Halloween business. It seems like you did it for about five years or so. Yeah. So that company I was involved in, you know, there was overlap between the two. So I was involved in that one till 2001 and I started by seasons, which... Well, real quick, because I think we're going a little too fast. If you don't mind, I'll slow you down. So how did you even get the money to do the pop-up for the Halloween? I think a lot of people, they can relate to this part of your story because we've all seen that, at least in the US. You drive around, you see the vacant shopping center space and then the Halloween guy goes in there and pops in there. Like you said, you were successful at it. So I'm just curious, like how that business model even works and sound like you prepared all season long and maybe people think you're not doing anything all year long, but you're trying to find locations. But I'm just trying to figure out how much money you needed to get started up because you're younger then and then how much money you actually end up pulling out, I guess, from Halloween during this period. Yeah. So happy to kind of cover that. So again, just for the benefit of your listeners, again, we're going back in time over 20 years. So the way the Halloween business operated then is definitely different than it did today everybody, it was kind of the Wild West. So in the mid-90s, Halloween was still controlled by a very few kind of obscure Halloween companies that were kind of odd ducks, so to speak. The whole industry had not become mainstream yet. It's now mainstream. You'll find Halloween costumes of all varieties on Amazon or Target or Walmart. But again, 20-something years ago, it was a different business, right? It was really kind of the pioneers in the space back then. So we capitalized on that too. And why that was helpful is because you had manufacturers at the time that were looking for people to sell their costumes and they would allow you to do something that's called post-dated checks. So one, no one uses checks anymore. But back then you could actually write out a payment of schedules for your inventory to these vendors in post-dated checks. Essentially, it would give them a half a dozen checks and every few weeks, these checks in different amounts, they would be able to deposit in cash as your cash flow came in. So it was very lucky for two young guys that didn't have a lot of credit, had no money. We started the company with $4,000 each, so eight grand. We started this company. And I think our first year in Halloween, you're testing my memory, we were about a half a million in revenue that first year. And it just like shot to the moon. And so not only did we make enough money to pay for the product that we sold, we made enough money to pay for the product that we called we carried over, right? So if you're in the Halloween business, come November 1st, all those Halloween masks and costumes are just not going to sell. So you need to carry them into the next year. And so a lot of your profit, or at least our profit, was tied up in inventory at that time. We used a lot of our experience back then to kind of figure out ways to optimize so that you would wind up with the right inventory at the right time, but the least amount of inventory at the end of the season. So you had the most cash flow left over to not only pay the bills, but also to take home and feed your family. So 
we were young guys and we were single at the time and no family. And, you know, we could live in inexpensive studio apartments and do what you had to do. And we did that, right? So that was also another benefit we had, right? Today, I'm older, I'm married, I have a mortgage, I have a wife, I have a son. I really can't take that level of risk now. And so I was fortunate enough to do that earlier at a point in my life when I was able to do that and just take all the risk on myself. And it paid off for us. Even after the first year, all your money was tied up in the inventory and you got better and better at it. So, I mean, how much in profit would you say that you might make in a season, I guess, by the time you ended up selling it? Because you only got like a one month window, it sounds like, to make as much money as you can with this inventory. Yeah. So we would actually call the season a three month window. So it would start in August. So we'd start opening our temporary stores in August and then in September and then in October. So August was just really, got it gave us a runway so we could stagger the opening of the stores, attract employees and kind of get the operations up. If we broke even in August, we were high fives all around. And back then the malls would actually let you almost come in for free in August because they were just looking to kind of fill up this space so that as they got their holiday, their Christmas tenants, they could show what's called a higher occupancy, meaning that there was a higher percentage of the stores that were occupied. So it was a mutually beneficial relationship. About 5%, maybe 10% of the business would happen in August, 30% or so in September, and then the last 60% or so would happen in October. So it was definitely an October business uh, for sure, but we actually ramped it up over three months. To talk about what profits, the gross profit typically, or I guess the net profit of the organization would be around that 20%, which is good. I mean, very good in retail. Now, we would be lucky to get half of that back out in terms of cash flow because the other half would be stuck in inventory. And in those early years, we were growing every year. We were adding to the number of stores. So each store, we were owning more and more and more inventory, but we were getting enough cash flow to also pay for the growth of the business as well as our own paychecks at the time. So to be quite frank, it was pretty successful right out of the gate. And that's just because of a couple of key things. One of them was the biggest was timing. You're the first into the market. You're kind of an innovator and a leader and everyone's playing catch up. And we were comparatively young in our approach. So we focused on things like inventory systems. And again, today you would say, of course, you're going to focus on something like that. But 20 something years ago, our competitors would laugh at us and say, you're just investing too much time. Why are you tracking all of this stuff? Well, the truth is, is that we we're able to track it, understand the curves, understand what the demand looked like, and we we're able to go back and just continuously year after year optimize our inventory, which meant higher revenue because we had the product and the customer needed, and lower carryover inventory, which means there was more cash flow for the business. And so we actually wound up being one of the most successful operators in that space before I turned my attention to doing it online. So you did this for five or six years, and then when you said you went online, is that when you started buy seasons? Yeah, so buy seasons uh, was and is. I sold the company in 2006. It's still around and successful today. And so no one knows buy seasons per se, but they would know the, the brands that make up buy seasons. The first one was buycostumes.com. Buy costumes became the largest online retailer of costumes on the internet in the world. One out of three costumes sold in North America online was sold through buycostumes.com. So it got to be very, very big. When I left, it was about 175 million in revenue. And this is in 2010 comparatively small for online retailer, certainly bigger than the company I'm running today. But in terms of the Halloween space, it was the market leader. I sold the company to a public organization in 2006, Liberty Media. They own QVC and Stars Television Network. At the time, they owned DirecTV. They were looking to kind of acquire specialty retailers. So we were one of the first that they acquired. After us, they acquired bodybuilding.com, backcountry.com, ProFlowers, and so that was kind of a fun time to not only have a major liquidity event in my company, I sold it quite a fair amount and was one of the larger shareholders, number one. And number two, I actually then got to really hone my skills on the other side. So I went and moved to Liberty 
By day, I would operate by seasons. I grew that business a lot while I was there for four years. But then at night, so to speak, I would help them out with the M&A, the mergers and acquisitions, as we identified these other companies to buy. So we bought Evite, which is a big invitation website, Gifts.com, Celebrate Express, merged those into my last company by season. So that was a very exciting time for me to learn that kind of side of the deal. Well, did your partner, I guess, who originally you're with, John, were y'all 50-50 partners in the original business and didn't move on to the buy seasons brand? Yeah, so we were 50-50 in GMI, which owned Halloween Express there, as well as 50-50 on, in buy seasons. So when we started buy seasons, so by 2008, the fall of 2008, when we came up with the idea for the internet version, we were just really starting to flow cash and really build to start to make money. John got into the business because he loved to travel and he knew that by operating a seasonal business, he could work remote and his family could go to Mexico and things like that that you wanted to do. And I got into it because I really wanted to build an empire. You're your mid-20s, that was the exciting thing that I wanted to do. So we were very closely aligned in the early years. And to John's credit, in the later years, when we got to like 2001, we finally went our separate ways. He was taking a lot of our profits, his profits, and help, and with me funneling them into the new company and to buy seasons. And I give him a lot of credit for that. But one day he just came to me and said, look, Jalem, this is not what I want to do. I know you want your big company and I want to support you with that, but I just want to run our smaller company over here, which by then it was actually a bigger company, believe it or not. So GMI was called five, the Halloween Express brand was like five to 10 million, I think about that time. And by seasons was still only like three, four, five million in the early 2000s, very small still. But he knew that the vision was there to grow that. So he came to me and said, look, let's figure out a way to go our separate ways. He wound up taking all of the Halloween Express business and a very small piece of by seasons going forward so you could capture some upside. And it wound up working out for everybody. I was able to grow that big business that I wanted. He was able to focus on kind of the smaller business, which he still runs today, actually. He's still now, 20-something years later, runs those same seven to 10 Halloween stores every year. But he was also able to capture some upside when we ultimately sold the business in 2006. Was it difficult to part ways with him? I look back on it, I say no, not at all, because I now have the experience uh, that I didn't have then. At the time, of course, there was maybe a little bit of emotion and this and that, and you know, he said, she said, but looking back on it now, it really wasn't that hard. I mean, we were pretty close at the time, working side by side, and we had different agendas. And I give John a lot of credit for one saying, hey, I'm going to, with my partner, support him and funnel my profits into this new venture. And two, then coming to me and saying, look, this is actually not as comfortable for me as it is for you. And I'd like to get out. And he did. And we did so in a way that worked out for both of us. So I still talk to John a lot. I and mean, we haven't been business partners in quite a while, but he's very well respected in the community in Wisconsin for what he does. And I respect him immensely for just having that fortitude to come to me and say, look, this is the deal. Was it just mainly the two of y'all? Because I couldn't understand the seasonal business when you're putting up these Halloween shops, you're just hiring temporary employees. And then also when you're doing buy seasons, it sounds like if it's an online retailer, if you're doing that, that you don't have a lot of overhead or you don't have a lot of employees. How many people did you all have working for y'all? And how are you splitting the duties when you move to buy seasons? Yeah. So that was one of the things. It is all hands on deck for a seasonal business. And by all hands on deck is if you're awake, you're working. And probably any business is that way, but in particular one where you only have three months to capture your entire annual revenue. 
the truth was, is that when we were starting by seasons and I was working hard on that, he was still growing our kind of core business. So we had initially just kind of gravitated towards the two. He was a very good merchandiser, very good at setting up stores. I was the one who negotiated the leases in the beginning. So I did all of that and kind of set up some of the logistics, some of the point of sale system from my tech background. And so we kind of got that established and he was just on the ground operating. And I turned my attention towards uh, building by seasons. And again, this is in the early 2000s, late 90s. There was no Shopify. You want a shopping cart, you want an e-commerce website, you had to build it all yourself. It was the same thing with back-end inventory system and things like that. So there was a lot of coding, a lot of engineers, a lot of kind of first time doing things. And because the business was so seasonal, Buy Costumes got to be the fourth largest, most visited apparel website in the country in October, just behind Victoria's Secret. So if you can think about that, Victoria's Secret was in their heyday, and we were fourth behind them in terms of most visited website. These couple of guys running an e-commerce company out of Wisconsin. Building systems that could handle that load, that infrastructure, that order volume was very difficult. And as we get back to that kind of barrier to entry is we were able to stay ahead of the competition on innovating all of that. So we had two advantages at at buycostumes.com, the retail brand of Buy Seasons. First was first movers advantage. So we got brand awareness right out of the gate. The second was, is we were able to invest and made a decision to invest in the infrastructure necessary to support the demand. So those two things together really allowed us to separate ourselves from the competition. And that's why we had a 30% market share. It seems almost two different skill sets to an extent, other than you were able to figure out, I don't know if you're using Excel back in the day when you're using GMI to figure out your Halloween inventory and whatnot, but at least you might understand numbers that way. But then developing a website to sell stuff online, like today, I think I would know what to do. I mean, there's multiple websites I can go and find a contractor to hopefully help me at least mock something up actually get something functional, right? And now you're even saying there's Shopify and easier ways today. But how back in 2001, were you able to get buy seasons off the ground and get started? A website back then, obviously, seems like a lot more difficult than launching one today. Yeah, it is. And I'll definitely touch on it because it's entertaining, but I don't know how relevant it is anymore. So if you rewind 20 years ago, you didn't have virtual servers at that time virtualizing machines today means you can spool up servers virtually on whether it's Amazon or Heroku or others. You didn't have that back then. So if you needed 10 servers, you had to buy all that equipment and put it in what was called a data center at the time. And then you had to buy the equipment to do what was called load balancing, which meant essentially moving the traffic between these various servers as they began to hit capacity. Fortunately for me, in 2000, 2001, the internet bubble burst and the pets.com of the world imploded. And I was able to go out there, believe it or not, on eBay and buy load balancers, right? That was one of the biggest things that we had to have. There was a company called F5 Networks that made these load balancers that were like $200,000 each that I was able to buy for like five grand. I mean, it was just crazy. And then I had to hire people to kind of break into them so that we could unlock the keys so that we could then redeploy them on our domains. I mean, this was just kind of like Wild West craziness back in the day. So I guess that was another thing that helped us is that we didn't raise big money at buy seasons in the beginning. So when the dot-com bubble burst, we were still there just focused on profitability. But two things happened. One, the ability to advertise became so much more cost-effective because there was no one competing for the space anymore. And the equipment we needed, which you don't need anymore, but the equipment we needed at the time, servers and load balancers, those became readily available on eBay. And I was able to pick them up for a song. So a lot of stuff kind of went our way. You have to be smarter. We had to be smart. You had to have kind of a key value proposition, but I can never underestimate in my own case, the role that luck has played in the success that I've had. 
And you said you're buying these load balancers because I'm even Googling them now. So now I understand, are these going to server rack? Is that what you would? Yeah, exactly. Okay, exactly. So I think people might be able to visualize a server rack, just all these little things. I had no idea that they cost that much. You said you got them for like 5000 Obviously, it depends on how powerful it is. But the ones you were getting for 5000 like how much were they usually worth at that point in time? So back in the day, so we would get F5. So F5 Networks was the premier load balancer at the time. And again, this is so long ago that it's not overly relevant, but what is relevant is the story to kind of access and kind of the ability to build kind of the infrastructure on a budget. So F5 Networks, I think at the time, would sell a pair of load balancers, a pair, because you needed a pair for failover in case one failed. There'd be a primary and then a secondary backup uh, balancer. I think they're about $100,000 to $150,000 is what they would sell them for. I could buy them for $5,000 all day long on eBay. And that's because the market just got flooded with them and all these companies went out of business and I picked them up. And then what I was able to do, honestly, is track down the engineers that originally installed these because F5 at the time had to lay off a bunch of its staff. I would track them down and say, okay, I've got this load balancer, but I can't access it. How can I get in there? And they would hack into these systems for me and give me access to it so that we could reconfigure it to run our domain and our system. It was really kind of Wild West style taking advantage of the dot-com implosion that happened that allowed us to do things like that. And that allowed us to, one, do things that the competition couldn't, meaning we could handle hundreds and hundreds of thousands of web visitors a day, which you can do now on a Shopify site. But back then, you just could not do that. 20 years ago, you get 50 people on your website, and that was about it. So we were able to do things that allowed us to kind of continue to capitalize on our first mover's advantage and handle that traffic. And I remember the first time I told a competitor, I was giving a talk that we had 20,000, and again, this is, we got to 50 or 60,000 orders a day, but at the time I said, we had 20,000 orders in one day. And they said, how is that even possible? We don't get 20,000 orders in a year. And the key was two things, one, first mover's advantage, and two, building a system that could scale and handle that traffic. We take for granted that the apps that we use can connect and stay connected over the internet. Domain name systems, AKA DNS, makes that possible and are one of the most critical pieces of app infrastructure. Architecturing and managing reliable global DNS infrastructure is tough, especially when you consider the growing number of deployment options and distributed architectures. For example, app services can run anywhere on any cloud, stack, or platform. And while developers are great for helping develop an app, well, they're usually not DNS infrastructure experts. F5 cloud services have made app delivery and security so simple that anyone can set it up. And not only that, you can set up F5 cloud services fast. When you're on a small team, you need services that enable you to be agile and move fast and with confidence. F5 cloud services expertise as a service lets you achieve worry-free DNS infrastructure in minutes. See, F5 delivers DNS tech with SaaS. It's designed for app developers and DevOps teams who want to move incredibly fast. Give your apps the DNS infrastructure they deserve with just a few clicks or API calls so that you and your team can spend more time innovating. F5 has 20 years of experience in the app services and they know what you need in order to implement a great performing app. So if you have an app or you're about to get started on one and you want to help support our show, well, now's a great time to start F5 Cloud Services because F5 is offering a free trial for our listeners. Just visit f5.com forward slash millionaire. That's f5.com forward slash millionaire.
I'm just mesmerized. I'm like, how did you know how to even do any of this? To be honest, because this does make me appreciate that much more. If you're launching a website and stuff like I didn't even realize that you're saying you needed to buy these physical devices, put them in a warehouse near you that would have servers. Because if you didn't buy these, you're saying something about a virtual server being able to do that. But I guess I didn't even realize that you'd have to buy your own and put them in a warehouse or something to make them actually work. So how did you know how to do all this? Well, necessity is a mother of invention, right? And at the end of the day, I didn't always know. You just learn, right? I think any entrepreneur has to do something that someone from the outside might look at and go, wow, that is incredible, or I could never do that. But you get so in tune with your business, whatever it is, at least this is my belief, you get so in tune with your business that you really understand the ins and outs and what's key, almost kind of like second nature. So Malcolm Gladwell, one of my favorite writers, wrote a book called Blink. And in that book, if you've read it, it's essentially these people that are so good at their area of expertise that they can just look at something and they just know where other people have to do these incredible contortions and calculations to come to the same conclusion. And a snap of your finger, they blink, they kind of know the answer. So I wasn't good at very much, but I was very good at understanding that business and that market. And partially because I understood Halloween, because I had to build it in the brick and mortar world. And I understood the scale necessary. And I did come from an engineering background. So I understood the concepts and what was necessary. But I also hired good people and we kind of figured it out together. And every year from 99, 2000, 2001, 2003, maybe even a little bit after, we got so much of the traffic to the website that even with all that infrastructure and all that preparedness, we still got overrun and the sites would shut down and we'd have to kick people off the site and stuff like that. So yes, we were better than the competition, but we certainly were not perfect. I can understand that you have to figure out a way if you're doing it, but I just feel like it was so much harder to find that type of knowledge, even through Google searching back then. I mean, even with the engineering background, you just thinking analytically and be able to figure things out. Because I think maybe over time, I could probably figure that out too, like what I have to do. And you have to actually end up hiring these guys to do that. I just feel like it's so much easier now if I wanted to learn about it to find that information versus in 2000. So that's why I'm pretty much in awe of like how you're able to figure that out then because technology is evolving so quick. It's hard for me to imagine you knowing what to do. And this whole time where you in Wisconsin, yeah, I was in Wisconsin at this time. So right, this is definitely not the tech hub of the world, right? That's what I was making sure. So our data center, which they called it at the time, where everything was hosted, was actually in Portland, Oregon. But that was the best one we could find. So it was far away. I could go on and on about this stuff. But at the end of the day, what Wisconsin, the advantage for Wisconsin is our distribution center was there. And so rather than having multiple distribution centers, we had one. And coincidentally, being in Wisconsin is so much better from a logistics standpoint to get to everybody in the country than it is, say, in New Jersey or somewhere in California, right? And so because shipping from California to the East Coast takes significantly longer than shipping from Wisconsin to the East Coast or to the West Coast, that was a little bit of luck. And a friend of mine started a company called Bodybuilding.com. So when Ryan started Bodybuilding.com, I remember I had a conversation with him. Liberty Media acquired his company as well, and that's how I got to know Ryan. So he had built a wildly successful business in the supplement space. And I remember we had a conversation about our two strategies. My strategy was one large distribution center in the middle of the country because you want to keep all your inventory there and all your employees there so you could capitalize on this seasonal spike. And his was the exact opposite. He was selling whey protein, which is a heavy, low-cost product. He needed to get that product as close to the customer as possible. And he actually set up a distribution system. So he had warehouses all over the place. And I remember he was like, why would you have one warehouse? And I remember saying to him, why would you have so many? And it was very clear based on the different needs of our prospective businesses that you needed to kind of operate differently. And we grew organically to that, right? He figured out he needed regional distribution centers. I figured out it was actually an advantage to have a centralized distribution system. 
it's good because both of you at least had a strategy of what you want to do. But I guess I'm just trying to figure out why they were different, like why he needed those regional ones versus why you can't just have a big one like yours. Yeah. So the reason you can is shipping. Whey protein is like a five pound jar of okay. powdered. Way more, or pun intended. Yeah. yeah whey does way more, right? <laughs> so actually, if you're a bodybuilder in the supplements, like whey protein is like you would see it at GNC or something on the shelf. It's this huge black jar, probably of like uh, powder in there. So, and that was one of the highest volume items. To ship that from Idaho to New York is significantly more expensive, especially at the time than if you had a regional distribution center somewhere out east. And so that's, it was because the cost back then to ship this and also the speed necessary to get it there was so critical. So he could have the same whey protein in all these distribution centers because he was selling that stuff every single day. If I had a Batman costume and the Batman gloves in six different distribution centers, the logistics to try and manage that for a seasonal business you inevitably will sell out of all your stuff in California distribution center, but still have customers in California, which means now you're going to your New York distribution center still has to send it to them anyways, right? It kind of kills the advantage you have of having regional distribution centers because of the seasonality of the business. And since the majority of our goods were going at the last minute via air anyways, we just struck deals with UPS or FedEx, depending on the partner we had in the business to just basically get the cost down and get uh, air shipment there. So managing the seasonal employees, we would ramp from 500 to 2000, much easier to do when you're in one location, bringing in all the inventory so that you maximize your use of inventory. So you have it when the customer needs it and you don't have it after the season. Centralized distribution was clearly the advantage at the time for that. Whereas a replenishment heavy product like whey protein needs to be regional distribution where you get that distribution center as close to the customer as possible. Okay. I'm glad I asked that question because I think that helps anyone who's thinking of that. Like, okay, if I'm going to go into seasonal business, like you're saying, your Batman costume might be up one pound and you, they want it overnight or whatever they want as quick as possible. And maybe it's 20 bucks versus a whey protein might be a five pounds and a 20 bucks as well. But again, that weight is not going to make it worth it for them to have that main distribution center. So yeah, I guess you gave us a couple of different bullet points or checkpoints as why you want different warehouses in different situations for different industries. We're having a conversation about the decisions made in businesses now like 15 years ago. So some of these 3PLs, it's called a third-party logistics provider, were not nearly as prevalent uh, back then. A lot of the things we're talking about, you need to kind of rewind to be in the context of the mid-early 2000s to really go, okay, that's like a clear no-brainer back then. Now it might be a little bit different because there's so many more options available to the retailer. I'm trying to think with your business now, since it's all niche, you want everything in one. It sounds like you have two warehouses, but you want it all in one because of that, basically what you're talking about before, versus if you have four small warehouses that want to work as well for your business today. This is a great segue because actually this gives the third option, which is if you look at our business at our current scale today, and let's just say we're shipping, just pick a number, which is not an accurate number, just to kind of give as an example. We're shipping, call it 7,000 orders a week, 1,000 orders a day. So that's 30,000 orders you're shipping a month in our single distribution center, right? If we're in Wisconsin, the cost to get to California is significantly more than it is to get it down to Illinois. But because we don't have the scale, we're not at 14,000 orders a week, say 28,000 orders a week. We don't have the scale. So one distribution center is still more cost effective because the fixed overhead cost, the cost of the building, the cost of kind of your management team and the cost to hold your inventory is still more advantageous to have a one distribution center. But what's going to happen in this business, as soon as we get big enough, let's just say we get to 14,000 orders a week, 2,000 orders a day. 
Then there's going to be enough orders out west, so California, Arizona, Nevada, Washington, where we can say, okay, you know what, we're going to put together a distribution center there in, say, Nevada. So it can feed regionally into those states, right? And so then when we get to the next level, we might say, okay, maybe we'll put one together on the East Coast and so on and so on. Actually, at scale, if we're shipping 100,000 orders a week, let's say, this business would greatly benefit from the efficiency gain in regional distribution. But because we're calling that, you know, 1,000 orders a day right now, it's better to have one. And there's going to be a point where we hit that tipping point where we say, okay, Let's pick up the savings and shipping, but add in the cost of the overhead of the employees, just the management of the employees, as well as the distribution center, and the cost to have extra inventory in a regionalized situation. If we have a conversation in a year or two, you may see that we now have two or three or maybe even four distribution centers, whereas one works today. Okay. So you only have one today, but the plan, for instance, let's just say if you're going to California to open up one out West, that would be your next plan to open up a second one there. So is that correct? Do you just have one warehouse today? We have one warehouse today and at the appropriate time, we'll add a second, a third and fourth. Okay. But the second one, for example, again, I know we're kind of transitioning into Wannable and I'll go back and make the hard transition, but I'm just curious when you go to get that second building or even your building today, do you end up purchasing it and building it or do you actually end up renting it and customizing it? Just tell us your thought process on that. Yeah, so it's a cost benefit analysis. So for us today, the cost to acquire a building, I mean, you have to tie up the capital and then the commitment you have to be there for a long period of time has not been worth it for us to own at this time, especially in the distribution center space. We did coincidentally just announced that we were buying a building next to our current corporate office because we're going to remodel that building and make it really cool for our employees of that facility. This business is now eight years old, almost eight years old. So eight years ago, I never would have bought a building. But today, clearly, we just you know, the situation worked out that our corporate office we want to own because we really want to customize that in a way that is ideal for our team and our vendors and, and folks that visit us. Whereas our distribution centers today, it's much more cost effective for us just to lease those out. Okay. Going back to the transition from buy seasons to Wannable, do you want to make that transition for us? Yeah, sure. So I sold the company in 2006 to Liberty Media, the parent company of QVC, and stayed on as CEO all of 2006 through the end of 2010. I had something that was called an SAR, a stock appreciation, right? Essentially, it's a vehicle to keep the executive in place and incentivize to grow the business. It's essentially a, a second exit. So my second exit came three years later in 2009. I was really enjoying working for Liberty Media and running by seasons. But that last year, I kind of made the transition outward and said, okay, I'm going to leave and kind of do my next thing. Yeah, one second, real quick. If you had to do it again and someone else was in that position, would you have done it again? It sounds like you had a lot of upside for potentially getting rewarded financially, but after you sold the business and staying on four more years or so. Yeah, so I would have done it again. And so let's start with why I sold the company. The three things that I looked at when selling a company and would look at again, if should I ever sell this company is the acquiring company going to continue the organization. Remember, you have a lot of employees there. So it's important to me to really make sure that I create an environment where there's still opportunity for them. So the first checkbox was we were getting acquired by a very large public company that could allow us to go out and do even more, create more opportunity for our employees and so on. So that was the first one. The second one is I had investors and were they ready? And was this, uh, this exit going to give them a good return? Check that box as well. They got a fantastic return. And then the third, important to me, but probably third on the list is what does this mean for myself and my family? I view my companies at the time by season was my second. 
kind of like children in the sense that you nurture them, you grow them, and at some point you send them off to the end of the world on their own, and you still look at them years later, even though you're not involved in their day-to-day, as proud of what you kind of got on its own way. So my first company, GMI, John still runs that today, is doing a fantastic job, just taking it in a bit of a different direction than when we started, but I'm still very proud to have been involved in that. By season, still doing quite well. Again, I've been at that organization for now 10 years, so very proud of that as well a lot of employees there that I hired. So there's people that are actually working at my last companies longer than I ever worked there because the companies have kind of stayed on and continued to thrive. So those are the things that I look at. Would I have stayed on given the chance by seasons? Absolutely. And the reason is I not only was able to continue to be at the helm and grow that company, we were about 50 or 60 million in revenue when I sold it. But when I finally left as CEO, we were 175 million. So we added more than 100 million revenue in three or four years. So I was very proud of that. Really enjoyed being part of that and seeing that business scale. And also what I learned. So when I went to work at Liberty Media, they taught me so much about the M&A space, mergers and acquisitions, why companies are bought, what they look for in founders, what they look for in organizations, and all these things that I otherwise would not have had access to as the entrepreneur kind of sitting on the other side of the table. So that really helped make me informed as I went, became an angel investor myself. I've invested in companies as well as starting Wantable on my own. Said, okay, I'm going to do this slightly different this time around so that I can maximize the return and the opportunity for employees. At this point in time, I know you said you had gotten divorced. Was this around this time? Yeah. My ex-wife, who can you overwork and underpay but your friends and your family? Right. And so my ex-wife, to her credit, worked very hard side by side. We started to kind of drift apart a bit. We got married young and we got wound up being divorced when we sold by seasons. And I think I was 34 at the time. She was about four years older. And so we just went our separate ways. But definitely it took its toll working together side by side because it's hard to be a great husband and a great boss, right? Yeah. I was going to say with this as well, I mean, what is your work-life balance like? It sounds like your wife was working with you. So if you don't mind, just get a little bit more in depth on that, because it's pretty amazing that these first two companies, how successful you've been, but obviously you had to make sacrifices. So I'm just trying to figure out the hours you put in and how you're able to do that. Yeah. So anybody who's starting a company, or at least from my perspective, it requires three ingredients. You have to be willing to work at your absolute limit for as long as possible. And people say, oh, I work 10 hours, I work 50 hours, whatever it is. I mean, whatever your limit is, you need to give it that and then beyond at a sustained pace, period. There's been no escaping hard work in my three companies for myself or for the team, right? My employees would be the first one to raise their hands and say, we're right there with you. Second is going to be identifying and understanding kind of like your market opportunity, and being passionate about it. So I've been passionate about e-commerce and retail my entire career. So it's really kind of helped. And then the third one, which in my case has probably played the biggest role, is don't underestimate luck, right? I had to work hard. I had a time of market, but I also, a little bit of luck was necessary to make me as successful as I was. And so I use luck as something that's kind of out of your control that hits you, good luck or bad luck. So September 11th, 2001, that was terrible for the world, but of course it was very, a small side effect was it was terrible for the Halloween industry as well because of when it happened. And so that's bad luck for the whole world, which then trickles down to our industry. Good luck for me was around the same time, the dot-com bubble burst and 
I got to advertise on msn.com, which no one knows anymore. It's now called Bing. <laughs> but MSN used to be the default homepage on Internet Explorer when you bought your Gateway 2000 computer or your Dell computer. And I got to have an advertising partnership with them that no one else would take because everybody else went out of business. And so I got to pay pennies on the dollar, much like I got to pay pennies on the dollar on those F5 networks, load balancers we talked about earlier. So I drifted and I apologize, but we were asking specific about kind of the work-life balance. So in the early days, there was zero balance, right? So you're 22 starting out in a company. To be perfectly honest, my apartment, which was 400 square feet, was just a disgusting mess. I would do the laundry off the floor. I'd pick it up off the floor and do the laundry. And if, if it was there long enough, I'd consider it clean and rewear it. I mean, that's what I had to do back then, or I felt I had to do. And I suspect your listeners that are starting companies have very similar stories. I'm not unique in that regard. But it did take a toll on my first marriage. And that was one of the sacrifices that we both made for success was kind of the deterioration of the relationship. My current wife, Jessica, who's been with me almost the entire time I've started Wantable, is not involved in the company whatsoever, even though she comes from a retail background. I could lean on her expertise, but I really try to avoid it. And she does kind of her own thing. And I get to complain about work at the end of the day. And she gets to be a nice shoulder to cry on or vice versa, because she's not there to kind of call my BS and say, well, you know, you're complaining, but it's really your own fault because I was there with you at the office all day and you did it to yourself. So I've found that that to be quite useful. And so you said you wouldn't recommend working with a spouse and I could see it being an issue as well. I mean, was everything kind of perfect in the beginning? I just want anyone who might be in the same position, let's say they're working with their spouse and they're starting to see these signs. I mean, is there any signs or suggestions on if you're able to save your marriage, I guess, to an extent or what else you would suggest them do? Because as entrepreneurs, that's what I want to emphasize is like how much hours you actually have to put in because I think that gets swept under the rug time and time again. Like it's great hearing your story and seeing how great everything's gone, but it's gone that way for a reason. It's not, you can just tell through your voice and I can obviously tell and people listening is like you had to put in a lot of hours. So any suggestions on working with a spouse or just suggestions overall with this? So what I can do is just share my experiences, right? Maybe the lesson here is not necessarily don't work with your spouse, but don't work with me as your spouse, maybe. Because we're all different. We're all different personalities. I am a type. You haven't told your wife about us. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. She is not a type A personality and she's more easygoing than I am. And I'm an intense person. And sometimes having that kind of intense approach is very useful. And other times it can create friction on your, to be quite frank, on employees and your significant other. So I've had to figure out over the years how to kind of bring that down a notch, right? So that's just on me. If you don't have that personality type and you can work with your spouse, I've seen it work. And so I'll use the case of my parents. I grew up in kind of an alternative household and kind of hippie parents in Northern California. But at 14, I wrote a business plan for them to buy the bike shop that they wound up buying. And they worked together and ran that business quite successfully until they retired. And so there was a lesson there. The lesson was that you can work with your spouse. My parents did it with no problem. But for me, I just have not been able to do that. And I'm not going to repeat the mistakes of the past. I'm going to kind of look inward and say, okay, what am I great at? What am I not great at? And what are things I just simply can't change about myself? So the things that I'm not great at, I really do try and make an effort to change. But in my DNA, like many of us, there are certain things that are just hard coded that trying to change it is not the right thing. So I did not want to invest the time and energy to say, okay, I'm going to make it work and have my put my relationship at risk and bring my wife into this company. I'm not going to do that to her, our son, or myself. 
And so I decided to do it differently that time. But again, if you're going to do it, I will tell you what I did wrong that was the worst. And I would boil it down to the simple thing is, is that if you're working shoulder to shoulder in your small business with your significant other, they're going through all the same emotions you're going through, right? And you can't meet payroll. Well, guess what? They're right there with you and you're complaining about it. Well, they've got to like listen to it. And also the level, I was always the chief executive officer of the company to not be on the same level with my spouse really probably put my ex-wife in a position like, okay, he's barking orders at me all day at the office like everyone else. But now we come home. I'm not going to take that. I'm not, you know, that's different. So kind of recalibrating that, right? So just making sure that if I were to do it again or forced to do it, I would really make sure that I understood the impact of what I'm going through is the same impact on my significant other because she was right there with me the whole time. Well, thank you for sharing that because those are little things that tidbits and maybe someone is working again next to their spouse today. Maybe they're seeing these things and understanding that you can't just bitch and moan at them and then come home and everything's going to be same. I can understand from her perspective. And like you were saying, I think a lot of us listening probably have that personality that you have because we're listening to a business podcast on how to make our business better. So we're those type A and sometimes you're like, okay, you just can't act like that to your spouse the whole time all day and not expect any repercussions, if you will. Exactly. Well, so with buy season, eventually you get out of it. So now we're about 10 years away. It sounds like 2010. Can you just tell us about how long it took you to actually start Wannable and your transition? And I guess you were single at this point too. So just tell us about, it sounds like a couple of life changes and how you're going to approach this new business here. Buy seasons was my first, what I would call material exit. Yes, I sold GMI and did okay there, but I went from doing okay to making tens of millions. That kind of life-changing event when you're also getting divorced, especially as a guy who started his first company at 22, I was like, I almost kind of flipped everything around and said, okay, I'm going to go through like my 20s now for a few years, which I did. I bought the hot rod cars. I dated a little bit. I just enjoyed life. I did a lot of traveling with my guy friends. I mean, we went on some incredible trips and stuff because I was afforded that opportunity. I kind of took that opportunity to kind of enjoy all of those things that I spent so much of my life working towards. And I said, you know what? I'm going to go do that. So I did that for a few years. I actually did that at 2008, 2009, 2010. Even though I was still running by seasons, the company had 500 full-time employees. And I had some great executives. So I was able to go down from that 80 hours a week to call it a normal 50 or 60 hours a week, depending on the time of year. And I got that kind of, to use the cliche, I got that out of my system, so to speak. And then said, okay, I just did the analysis. I was in my late 30s at this time. I said, okay, all my friends are still working hard and I can just sit around and do nothing and retire early and then get the itch in five or 10 years and then feel like I'm too old to start a company again. So I said, you know what? I'm just going to do it again. I had lunch with a good friend of mine in Southern California that was running a successful internet company at the time. And I sat down with a blank piece of paper and said, okay, what am I good at? And I just kind of went down. I've listened to some of your other podcasts where you, you, know, you talked to, I think it was your brother once was talking about before he started his business. Um, he just kind of took this whole list and said, okay, these are all the things that I could do or could want to do and started to kind of narrow it down. I did the same thing. And I came down to the fact that for better or for worse, I know retail, I know e-commerce. And if I were to start today, I would be a fool not to benefit from the years of experience I already have even though there were other exciting businesses that I wanted to start. So Wantable was born with the concept of how do you compete in a world where Amazon will eventually dominate the retail spectrum, which they are. And so that came down to serving a niche that Amazon was not focused on at the time, which was personal styling. And we're really in the self-confidence business, right? We're in the business of helping customers dress so that whatever it is, they have confidence. If they're going to the gym and they need to have clothes that fit and look right so they can get a good workout in, we want to fuel that self-confidence, right? 
If you're a woman that's starting a new job and maybe the work environment there is different than the one at your previous job and you want to have the suit of armor, so to speak, so you can go to work and feel confident and look the part, we're in the self-confidence business. So we do it by selling women's and men's apparel, but that's really what our mission is, right? Our mission is to help our customers fuel their self-confidence. That was the concept when you launched this, it was 2012, we are saying? Because you are partying or Late for a couple years. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Maybe not just partying, but, you know, somewhat working. Yeah. And trust me, I think a lot of people understand too, after you so hard on the you seesaw of working so hard, you've got to relax some. And trust me, yeah. I think I've been through it. Everyone's been through it to an extent of like, maybe it's not as long because I didn't work as hard or as long as maybe you did where you're just grinding for 80 hours for eight years. But I think all of us go through work-life balance readjustment to extent. It's not always perfect all the time. Exactly. So you're saying it was 2012 when you did this. And so how much money did you have to put in? And you keep saying it's men and women, but what's the percentage of women clothing or customers versus men-based? Yeah. So we saw three categories today. Women's, what we call ready to wear, women's fitness apparel, and men's fitness apparel. The two women's categories are probably 80% of our business where the men's fitness is 20% of our business. But that's okay. I mean, we are really a female-centric brand. Our men's category is a great category. I'm a subscriber to that category. And I love the product. And at the end of the day, that's what we're in the business of doing is building relationships with our customers, no matter how many we have. But we are primarily a women's brand today. When you started, was there a logic behind that? Yeah. I imagine so. <laughs> so the truth, it was very logical. 70% of Halloween costumes, the decision is made by a woman. She's either making the decision for her family or she's telling her boyfriend what he was going to be. That's the way it was. 30% of the time, guys made the decision themselves with no input from either their sister or their mom or their wife or their girlfriend. So women do control in the sectors that I want to be in the lion's share of the dollars. So I would be remiss if I didn't go after that market first. And the market resonated with where I was at the time, right? You know, a mid-30s professional person. And so that's who I was looking to go after just because it was a lucrative market. I thought I could address that market. I thought there was a real need there to serve. And you were single. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I was still technically single when I started Wantable, but that was going to soon end. I met my beautiful wife, Jessica, realized that I couldn't do any better. So <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask if she was your first customer. That's what I was curious about. <laughs> no, but she's my lowest profit customer. How about that? There you go. So when you're starting this as well, like how much money did you have to put in here to get this thing jump started? I'll be candid here because I'm talking about my own experience. So now I'll answer that question, but I'll fast forward to where I am today. Even today, the size of the company, the company is profitable. I don't take a salary. I've never taken a salary. So that means over a decade, I haven't gotten a paycheck. First, that's the commitment I was able to make because I had done well at my previous companies. Second, of that 5 million or so that we've raised, three and a half million of that has come from me. So I am by far, obviously, the largest shareholder of the company, but that's one, because I'm the founder, but two, because I put in significantly more money than anyone else. And so that was a lesson that I picked up from Liberty Media is I didn't want to raise a lot of money. And I also want to retain a lot of control over the organization. You can only do that, right? I mean, everybody who wouldn't want to do that, but you can only do that if you're in the position that I was in to one, put in the money and two, never take a salary. To answer your question... In fact, I was just skimming through this the other day because I was having a conversation with a buddy. So the investment that I made on day one when I started the company is I had a Lamborghini at the time. And so I sold the car kind of more as a gesture to like my own mindset of like, okay, now it's time to get back in the trenches, right? So I sold that car from three, $400,000. And that was the first money into the company. I could have just put the cash in. I could have kept the car, but I did that kind of to get myself back in the mindset of like, okay, it's time to go to work. You're not playing around it. That was in, I think, August of 2012 that I did that. 
over the years, it's been a few years since I put money in the company because we're profitable now. But over the years, every time that I wanted to go out and raise some money, I was able to go to shareholders and say two things. One, I'm participating in this round, this investment round at the same per share price that you are. And two, I still don't take a salary in the company. And so that made it very easy for me to kind of go to the market, even in Wisconsin, and raise money. Having a proven track record help and also being able to make that commitment help. So I'm sharing that, but if we kind of look to you know, your listeners, that's probably not relevant to too many people today. It takes your third company or it took me my third company before I could be in a position to do that. That's certainly not first company advice. It wasn't in my case. I mean, I had to sell the majority of buy seasons for a million or two dollars lost control of the company, but I had to. And then we wound up selling for north of 50 million. And so the people that put in a million or two, they wound up making 10 or 15 million uh, in a few years did quite all right. And they should have done all right because we were high risk and I was not in a position at the time where I couldn't take a salary, nor could I put in that level of money. Over time, you ended up putting 3.5 million, but how about even just getting started? Did you need that much to even get started? No, like I said, to get started, it was- Just a Lambo as a 400K? I think in the first round, I put in 500,000, but I'm going off of memory here. But yeah, it was $500,000 because I needed to hire some employees. I needed to kind of establish operations. And I did that. And actually, my first employee is still with me today, Casey Sabrilski. He's our CTO of the company. And I hired him while he was still in college. He was going to school during the day and working on Wantable at night. And so you said you were going around, I guess, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, to try to find investment money over time as well. But did you ever think about going to San Francisco or somewhere else to raise even more money? No, I didn't. And the reason I didn't is because I entered with a strategy. And that strategy was not to get large VC money. Because two things, I didn't think I needed it. And two, I didn't want to give up control of the organization. People always say, hey, I want to build this unicorn and sell for a billion dollars. Well, those guys that are gals that sell their companies for a billion dollars, in most cases, own less than 10% of the company. If you think about it, you got 10% of a billion dollar company, that's $100 million. That's a lot of money. But if you have 100% or 90%, let's say, 90% of a $100 million company, well, you've still got $90 million. But the amount of companies that can, can and will buy a $100 million companies are significant. And the amount of times that there's a liquidity event at $100 million are significant. So if you think about it, do you really want to give up? You're just greatly increasing the odds against you if you're in a market that you have to build a billion-dollar company to get $90 million. That makes sense. I understand that now, but I didn't know if you're thinking about that even when you got started. You actually were thinking about that in 2012 when you got started? Absolutely. It was part of the plan. So I decided in the beginning, I don't ever want to run a public company. I didn't want to go out and get big VC dollars. That's not what I was looking for. I was a capitalist. I am a capitalist. I'm looking for the most efficient return for myself, my employees, and my investors. And in my case, that doesn't mean building a billion-dollar company that's going to have an IPO. I respect those companies tremendously, but I'd rather own 90% of a $100 million company than 9 or 10% of a billion-dollar company. You went from 2012 up till today. Was it just slow and steady growth each year? Yeah, this is another thing that it's been methodical growth. I know people will say that, but Something else I learned is that you need to kind of maintain a growth curve, or this is my belief. I mean, there'll be people that'll say, no, no, Jalem, you're wrong, and they're probably right. But in my particular case, it was important to me to say, okay, we're going to maintain a growth curve. So what that meant was that if you're growing 10x in year one, that's super cool. That gets everyone's attention. But going 10 times 10 times 10, before you know it, it's not sustainable anymore. For me, the sweet spot was 
roughly doubling every year was the goal. Now in the early years, we were going faster than that because it was just so easy. And now in the later years, we're at that 30 to 50% growth, so not quite that amount. But as long as we're growing faster than the competition, as long as we're growing faster than the general internet market, which is called 25% or so, 20% depending on who you ask, we're okay. I mean, heck, even Walmart grew their dot-com business, I think, last year, 35%, right? So if we're north of that, I think we're in a good spot because at some point, Wantable will most likely be an acquisition. I guess it's possible we'll go public, but it's probably going to follow a very similar path as my last company, which is you're going to get an organization that wants to buy you versus build. And that's very important because that means they're looking at you and your employees and your infrastructure as the value. And so oftentimes, especially in the Midwest and Wisconsin, people think acquisition, that means consolidation, everyone's losing their jobs. That's not the company I'm trying to build. I'm never going to do that ever. This is more like, hey, we're going to acquire you and now we're going to put rocket boosters on your business. So that's what happened in my last company. Everyone, not only was their job safe, but we had to hire more people to continue that growth, which also created more opportunity for people to move up and advance in their jobs. And so I view when there is a liquidity event, a sale of the company, that it's actually going to be met with incredible cheers from the team because not only do some employees have stock options, especially folks that have been there since the beginning, so they'll hopefully do okay, but also the ability to now say, okay, we're going to grow this company even faster because we have the resources of this new larger company, which creates opportunity across the board. And this whole time, again, I know you said you're in Wisconsin. Did you just have a house in Wisconsin? Because I was going to get to the point, I know when we started off the interview, you said you're in the Grand Cayman. So I would like to hear that transition. But I was just curious, when you went back to Monable, were you just 100% there in Wisconsin helping it grow? Or were you doing other things as well? No, 100%. So it was symbolic selling that car because that was really my commitment to like everything else is done. Now it's solely focused on this. I can't run multiple companies at a time. I mean, that's just not in my DNA. I'm either not good enough at it or not smart enough or what have you, but it needs to be kind of one thing at a time. And I'm also able to say to my team, okay, I'm not getting paid. This is all I do. I'm in it with all of you. Yeah, I couldn't be remote in the early days. Not in my business. It doesn't mean someone else couldn't, but you need to be there shoulder to shoulder with your team in the early days, kind of working everything together. We have transitioned from that first five years where you're very much a startup to now we're a, a mid-sized, we're a small company that's growing fast. We're not a startup anymore. I always say startups are like high school, four years and that's it. You don't want a fifth year of high school and you don't want to be running a startup on year five. That means you've done something wrong. You either haven't figured out your market or you haven't grown big enough to now be a mid-sized company. That's my opinion anyway. It's now been almost eight years. And so it was time. It's only been about a year since I've been working, you know, kind of in Grand Cayman. I have a fantastic team. I mean, just take Casey, right? He was my first employee out of college. He's now been with this company for eight years. He's the CTO of the company. I mean, this guy does not need me looking over his shoulder, right? He needs me as his partner and there to help him, but he does not need that supervision that maybe he needed six years ago. And so when you have strong people like that, that are invested in the business, that know it as good or more likely in some cases better than you do, it's also helpful to maybe, again, understanding my personality, to take a little bit of a step back and allow those folks to shine and to flourish, right? So that when someone used to maybe come to me for a decision that they really should have gone to Casey for, now, since I'm not in the office, they got to call me or hop on a video chat. They'll just go to Casey and the better decision is being more, more efficiently by the right person. Higher barrier to entry, right? Yep. Just to get to you and talk to you. Exactly. So tell us about that transition and, and you moving down to the Cayman Islands because you're the first guy that I've talked to in the Caribbean or is it Caribbean? Does it matter which Depends way? on how you say it. You know, depends. Yeah. Either or. In my case, I went to my executive team and I essentially told them what I wanted to do and I got their buy-in first. 
And so my CTO, my CMO, my COO, my CFO, right, every C under the sun, I got all those C-level executives together and said, hey, this is how it's going to work. I want your support in doing this, right? And so I made sure that I had high-speed internet down here, that I set up my office so that I was, you know, we use Google Meet, which is essentially the high-performance Hangouts version. So video conferencing is very easy. All of our conference rooms in Wisconsin have video monitors in them, not just for me, but for our other meetings as well. And I do travel back and forth all the time. So I still have a house there right around the corner from our office. And I'm in the office, you know, call it once a month. So I'm in person when necessary, but I'm online eight to eight every day so they can get a hold of me and we can talk. So it's worked out very well. And I got their buy-in by getting the buy-in from the executive team and also telling them about the opportunity that they could now kind of step up and kind of shape things a little bit more. Shouldn't say step up. That's the wrong word. They now would have the opportunity to kind of shape things with their direction, their vision and their signature as opposed to mine, I think was a little bit of appealing as well. Was it easier or harder than you thought as far as making that transition to moving down to the islands and you got to be more of a virtual, obviously, kind of CEO versus when you were there in Milwaukee? Yeah. So for me, it was easier. My employees are telling me it's easier, but for me, it was easier than I thought it would be. And I thought that's maybe because I felt I was more important than I really am, right? Because I remember thinking, oh, well, they're going to really need me to do this. And, and no, <laughs> they don't. You know, I talk to them every day, all day. So it's not like I'm not there, but I was not quite as important as I maybe thought I was, which allowed me to really focus. I mean, my efficiency here is incredible. I mean, I am able to focus and then step outside of my house, walk down to the beach, a, you know, at lunch for 15, 20 minutes and then come back. And so if I just look at my efficiency and as well as being able to kind of interact with my family or do things that kind of just snap me out of kind of the work mode for a second, it's been a huge win for me. I just love it. So you weren't able to walk to the beach from Wisconsin? Bradford Beach, which is Lake Michigan, this time of year has ice on parts of it. No, I would not walk down there. <laughs> yeah. But I am curious because it sounds like it's good that you're able to make that transition. But basically, you are working from home, even though it's probably a very nice home and you have a nice office or whatnot. But is there any tips or tactics that's helped you stay focused? Like, again, having that focus when you work from home versus going into an actual office where you see all the employees and you can have that mindset of like, okay, turn on the switch to work or turn off when you leave the office. Maybe this is my shortcoming that actually is an advantage when I'm remote, but I still work constantly, right? So there's never been a question for me that, oh, I'm not going to work, right? I'm always working. I mean, that's what I do. That's what I love to do. And what this enables me to do is actually have everything that I want. It allows me to not feel bad about working when my family's around because I can just run out and talk to my kiddo when he comes home from school like anyone else would do, but then I go right back into the office and work and get the work done that I need. It's not been difficult for me at all because I'll work anywhere. I mean, I went on a cruise and I would spend an hour just trying to download a darn attachment because the internet was so slow. But that's just in my DNA, right? And I suspect a lot of entrepreneurs, that's in their DNA too. You don't need anyone checking up on them. They don't need to go into the office to ensure they're working because they're working the second that they wake up and they're probably working in the middle of the night when they go to get a glass of water. I get you on that, but I didn't know if it like tactically or if you had any tips that helped you keep that concentration. And it's also just kind of funny that, I mean, you can do whatever you want, right? Because you've grown your businesses, you made the sacrifices, so you shouldn't feel guilty. But I think all entrepreneurs kind of feel guilty if you're not even working, you know? I'm just yeah. curious, like in your head or your mind, it sounds like you have really good focus, but sometimes if you go in a different setting, to me, it feels like, okay, it's harder for me to turn it on or turn it off versus right. like, maybe you're just always on 24 seven. So it doesn't matter. Yeah. So I'm a list maker. One of the things that I started 20 something years ago was having a spiral notebook that I would write a list of all my stuff. I also take notes there. 
And then I use a highlighter. And this is just my own weird thing. I use a highlighter when I finish it. And then when all my notes have kind of filled that page, I go through the process of copying over my notes, my to-do list onto the next page, which is A, a reminder of all the things that I didn't get done. And when I go two or three pages and I'm supposed to have done something, it's a great way. It always kind of bubbles up to the top. Now, I'm not right. I mean, that's old school, right? A pen and a paper, but that's my particular style. So the two things that are always with me, that notepad and my computer. Perfect. I've got two spiral books next to me because honestly, I mean, I'm looking at a computer 24, you know, it's all the time. So it's nice to actually physically write something. So I've kind of got a similar thing where I'm like, okay, on left, I'll do the to do, right? I have like notes and I've been keeping track of my time every 30 minutes or an hour to see like what I'm actually getting done. Cause it doesn't necessarily matter all the hours that I put in if I'm not being efficient at all. And so I'm trying to figure out and categorize right now. It's something I haven't done in probably about 10 years because I'm like, okay, what am I doing with my time? And I want to make sure I'm as efficient as I can. So again, yeah, just hearing you say that you actually write things down and are able to keep focus, I guess, that way. And if your list gets too big, then it sounds like you got to double time it as far as getting these things done that you need to get done. And that's worked for you. It does. It works for me. Great. Jim, thanks for coming on the podcast, obviously, and sharing your story. Is there any like last words of wisdom you might have for anyone who's listening here? One piece of advice I would give, especially since we spent kind of so much time covering a lot of ground is, I would always pick and choose the advice that you get. And what I mean by that is you have somebody like me that, you know, is sitting here and talking for an hour about all the things that he's done. Some of those are going to be very applicable to you. And some are going to be completely off the mark, either because it was so long ago or it just doesn't apply to you in your space. So don't be afraid to pick and choose kind of the little nuggets that you get. I mean, I was listening to your podcast in preparation for this. And I have to say, you know, I picked up one or two nuggets from each one of the guests. And that's good enough. Not all of their business advice applies to me or kind of it fits in my style. And so I would encourage anyone listening to what I have to say here. If there's something that doesn't resonate with you, get rid of it. Just focus on the stuff that does, if anything does. I'm so glad you said that because I don't think I've even voiced that once, to be honest, because like, I'm here just interviewing top guys or people in business and people might have totally different perspectives on it, but you got to pull what like resonates with you. Maybe for some people, like for me, I don't ever want to go in debt. So I want to be debt free and that's not my thing. But some people, they want to leverage the hell out of something and go ahead and mortgage your house to start a business. If that's your thing and you want to go with it, then go with it. But again, that's the reason why I asked the tactical thing there at the end of like, what do you do to keep track of what you're getting done and stay focused at work is anyone who's listening, you don't take every single thing that he talks about. But to me, I try to pick at least one thing. And for me, I mean, honestly, I probably at least I pick up 10 things, maybe nuggets, but it's like maybe only two or three resonate with me. So just kind of right. go with the flow with that, it sounds like. Yeah, agreed. So I think we're in complete alignment there. Don't contradict your own compass because you know yourself and your business better than anybody else does. But if something does resonate, take that. And for cool. anyone who's actually curious, how's life been in the Cayman Islands? Was it everything you thought it would be? Yeah, it's great. I mean, we had an earthquake not too long ago, which is the first time I'd experienced one of those on an island, seeing water slosh out of the pool. So it was a little exciting, but it's great. I mean, you know, look, it's not for everybody, but I enjoy the sunshine. I kind of recharge with that. So being able to walk outside uh, is great. And having my son being the only American in his class is very special. He's five. So it was very special to me to be able to allow him to kind of experience just different perspectives on this world because there's so many of us out there. We sometimes get trapped in kind of our own way and our own neighborhood and our own block. So for me, it's been a very special time. Oh, yeah. Thanks again for doing this interview. And if someone wanted to say thank you for doing the interview, is there a best way for them to reach you and say thanks? Yeah. So uh, my email is jalem, J-A-L-E-M at wantable.com. Feel free to drop me uh, a note there or, you know, I'm on Instagram at jalem. Perfect. Well, I appreciate it. And thanks again for coming on and sharing your interview here. Awesome. My pleasure. Really appreciate the time. Oh, 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 oh.
There's another website called familiar with that nick you know about that or yeah no? but they are but they're expensive right yeah, yeah. but i think they'll still be cheaper than 150k for an app right? <laughs> yeah 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 that's, that's, that's for sure am i that's getting ridiculous. am i getting bent over here is that what you're trying to tell me you're saying you're being really stupid okay so what hey, well you, you don't have a video call on so we can't tell if you're getting bent over <laughs> <laughs> That was a preview of our first group Patreon call. We're doing these group calls on the first Friday of each month. So if you want to join us, then become a Patreon. Plus, if you're a Patreon and you miss any of the calls, well, as you heard, we'll be posting the recording of the calls on our Patreon feed. So you'll never feel left out. Of course, those calls will be beep free. So you'll actually be able to hear the tools that we're using to grow our businesses. So don't be shy. Become a Patreon and join us on our next group call.